Welcome to Frankly Speaking. This is a new podcast on responsible business by Frank Bold, the European public interest law firm. This is our first anniversary edition. I'm Richard Howitt and I've had the privilege of hosting what is today the 30th edition of the podcast. And with thanks most of all to our now 9,000 listeners who join us. In Frankly Speaking, we've discussed new legislative requirements for corporate sustainability reporting and for human rights due diligence for business and all of the developments in sustainable finance. We've had exclusive interviews explaining the updated OECD guidelines on responsible business conduct and the reforms which have taken place at the UN-backed Principles for Responsible Investment. We've met frontline sustainability practitioners within business in transport, textiles and telecommunications, from pharmaceuticals and from food. And we've asked how to uphold responsible business principles in the light of the war in Ukraine, of slave labour in China and in relation to the ESG backlash in the United States. For today's anniversary edition, we've invited back three of those special guests to bring you up to date on some of those issues and also to look forward to what's going to happen next. First, welcome to Rachel Davis, co-founder and vice president at the Shift Project, I think the preeminent organisation working on business and human rights in the world. Welcome, Rachel. Thanks, Richard. Lovely to join you again. Thank you. Our second guest is Lena Serpa, Head of Corporate Sustainability and ESG at one of the world's biggest shipping companies, APM Mask. Welcome to Lena. Thank you so much, Richard. And welcome back to, to my third guest, Head of Frank Bold's own Responsible Companies section and someone who's played a leading role in shaping how sustainability reporting has developed across Europe and who today sits as a member of the FRAG Sustainability Reporting Board, Philip Greger. Good day to you, Philip. And to you, Richard. Now, let me start by asking each of you to update me on a key issue we've discussed in our original podcast together. Rachel, first, the Corporate Sustainability Due Diligence Directive, known as CSDDD, is wending its way through the Brussels Legislative process and it covers the requirement for companies to understand and to manage what's going on in their value chain. What is the latest state of progress? Well, uh, it's good timing you ask, Richard, because it's September. So as you uh, know all too well, things are really heating up again in Brussels. Um, the discussion has now moved into the trilogue phase where the uh, political institutions of the EU, the Council, uh, the Commission and the Parliament negotiate on the basis of the positions that they've put forward over the past year, a final text. Uh, and there's a big push to try to get that by the end of the year. Um, but of course, the negotiators do have until early next year, uh, until the new pa European parliamentary elections, if needed. But there's a lot of uh, a lot of attention on this now. And I think um, what we see at, at Shift when we look at this is a lot of reasons for optimism. There has been real progress in the positions that the council and particularly the parliament put forward um, since we last spoke. Uh, in terms of alignment, greater alignment with the international due diligence standards, the UN guiding principles on business and human rights and the OECD guidelines. Um, and they've made progress on integrating uh, what we would call a, a true risk-based approach. So really looking at severity as the basis for prioritization, uh, differentiating the kinds of actions that companies are expected to take based on how they're involved with an impact uh, and other key concepts like that. But there are also uh, some really open issues still on the table, um, which we and, and many others are concerned about and will be paying a lot of attention to uh, as the debate moves forward. That includes whether due diligence will apply to the full scope of the value chain, uh, whether it will include financial institutions in the same way as other sectors, um, and the really the quality of the actions that businesses are expected to take uh, to mitigate and address risks. Um, so moving away from a sort of top-down policing approach to something that's grounded much more uh, in partnerships that are, are more likely to produce better human rights and environmental outcomes. Lena, when you listen to that, does that make you feel optimistic? Uh, yeah, I, I have to say, I, I also, I mean, uh, I'm looking forward to seeing how uh, the um, the directive will progress now. I think uh, I agree that uh, 
that uh, the latest uh, uh, rounds, the latest discussions uh, also seem to be um, going in what I would consider a positive direction. Um, and uh, thinking um, in particular, uh, just, you know, inspired by uh, Rachel's uh, comment uh, on partnerships uh, towards the end, I think that's such an important piece because I feel both with um, in the discussions on the Corporate Sustainability Due Diligence Directive, as well as actually with the reporting directive, which of course coming up already next year, I think it's so important to have focus on the impact of what these directives are, are trying to achieve ultimately, right? How can we generate the best outcomes? And, and uh, I do feel like um, uh, that is a point that sometimes gets drowned a little bit in the debates, which are, are perhaps currently more focused on the more immediate compliance uh, topics. And that point, and Philip, you've you've talked very recently to, frankly speaking, about the European Sustainability Reporting Standards. So, if people want to listen to the detail, please do listen again to to that edition. But uh, can I ask you to sort of take that last point from Lena that sometimes we get lost in the detail of these legislative requirements and not what they're supposed to to achieve. And and what are they supposed to achieve? How how would you describe that? Well, uh, let, let me start from another angle. It's very difficult to dissociate the debate from the detail because, you know, it's just um, the, um, the whole legislation is supported by the reporting standards and the reporting standards are very detailed and they need to be detailed. So there is this massive practical challenge of translating that level of detail into, you know, companies' internal processes and reporting policies and so on and so forth. So I would say it is understandable that uh, people who deal with this within companies are now focused on the detail because you know that that's really something that they need to they need to deal with you know, on a, in a very short uh, short uh, time frame but i think Lena, what, what you said is absolutely right i mean that uh, that can lead to this to this kind of a thinking okay i, I need to do this i need to have my compliance compliance list uh, uh, checked and and that may lead us to miss the point of the legislation and as, 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 uh, as Rachel said, the due diligence is a, is a risk-based mechanism. And these principles have been also translated into the reporting regimes. So there is this, there is this, there is this issue of prioritization, of identifying, if I can use the reporting language, the material issues and, you know, addressing those and prioritizing, you know, the, uh, the, uh, the, those that are most material for action. And, and so on and so forth. So this will probably take some time for the at least 50,000 European com companies to really internalize this. But the good thing is that the uh, both pieces of the legis uh, legislation are very, you know, clearly sticking to these uh, to these uh, to these uh, to these principles. So I would be a little bit more optimistic. I would say that in the complexity and level of detail that uh, that is in some of this legislation is the actual is the actual strength of the legislation that actually it does a lot of thinking for companies it puts them in, in a situation where actually they will have the data they will have the principles and processes that they need to have and then they just need to start thinking and it will be much easier for them because they will not have to uh you know develop from a scratch you know the very mode of thinking about these issues both you and uh rachel yourself talk about this key issue of risk and Rachel uh, I think the big truth you know from the days you when you were in the UN to all the work that you do at the shift project is that risk is about risk to people first not just about risk to the business but many people in business not probably the sustainability people that are listening to this podcast but many of their colleagues see that word risk and they see it in traditional enterprise risk management terms risk to the the business with the companies that you're working with and with the, the general environment that you observe has there have we broken through now on that understanding of what risk really means it's a great question richard so if i look back to the period when i was part of the team supporting john ruggie and developing the guiding principles um, over a decade ago now and we look back across that period i think we see very clearly that companies that were part of those discussions, part of those consultations, and certainly that have been involved in implementation of the international standards since then, are aware of that difference. And there's been a growing level of understanding within those companies um, 
and the opportunity we have now is to push that all the way to the board level and out into different parts of the business beyond perhaps sustainability or responsible purchasing or wherever um, uh, responsibility may have been located up till now. Um, I think going back to the points that Lena and Philip were making, this looks this may look more overwhelming for companies that don't have the benefit of a decade of grappling with the international standards. Um, uh, for them, it may seem like a lot of detail uh, coming very quickly. Um, but actually, I, I really agree with Philip's point that if you look, say, just take the human rights part of, of what the, um, the new European disclosure standards are proposing, they give companies for the first time a really clear framework for understanding which people you're supposed to consider risks to. I know that sounds kind of obvious, but it, it hasn't been, right, to, to your question. You need to look at your own workforce. You need to look at workers in the value chain. You look at communities around your operations, the operations of your uh, value chain partners, and you look at people affected, um, consumers or end users affected by your products and services. So for the first time, we've sort of named <laughs> categories, broad categories of affected stakeholders that give companies now an architecture to take forward risk assessment, identification, prioritization processes. Um, that's, a, that's a real advancement, I think, in broader social sustainability reporting standards, um, just bringing that kind of uh, clear structure uh, to what's being asked of companies. Um, the opportunity now is for the uh, CS3D, the Sustainability Due Diligence Directive, to really follow that kind of clear approach, make sure it aligns with what's being asked of these same companies on reporting um, in terms of underlying uh, management of risks to people and planet. And Lena, really the same question. In MERSC, how did you break through that change of understanding to what risk really means with, with your colleagues? What, what were the arguments or the, the circumstances that enabled you to do that? And with, you know, you're in a very senior role, you're looking at what's happening outside as well. How far do you see that progressing in the wider business community? Yeah, thanks. Let me just uh, first just let me comment on uh, because I think that uh, both Philip and, and Rachel are making excellent points, and I and I and I do agree that uh, we need detail. It's not that I'm that I'm against the the, the detail of the uh, of, of the directives, both on reporting and, and and due diligence, because I I actually completely agree that that is what it takes to get to that next level of understanding in companies of you know beyond the sort of generic. Yes, we have to report, or yes, we have to do diligence. But what does it actually mean? Even you know the term due diligence uh, in itself. Maybe we can talk about that afterwards, right? But just also that, uh, as you know, now we're talking about what does the word risk actually mean? Risk to whom and and how? But but also that term due diligence is also one which we continue to have to engage in conversations with our colleagues about what does it actually mean? So so I, I understand, I and I and I support the level of detail, but I think. What I was trying to say is my concern is just that that um, in the initial approach uh, to this, that that somehow that understanding of the broader impact of what the directives aim to achieve might be lost. But I will go with Philip's optimism and uh, and hope that uh, that as companies and and broader, as you say, not just the companies such as Mask and others who have been working along these lines for many years, but but really the 50,000 and more companies, when they start working with this and, and can see uh, what is needed to drive change and benefit, that that can also drive that mindset of strategic value and impact. Um, okay, so so just on that, but, but coming back to your question, um, Richard, um, it's interesting because in Mask, we actually... Uh, when we first started working with this uh, sort of trying to really uh, ourselves get better at at understanding the difference between risk to people and environment society and risk to mask, we um, we we actually started talking very much with, with, about responsibilities uh, rather than risks to society or people. I mean, ultimately, at the, in the in the sense that we would have a responsibility following the principles, the UN guiding principles, uh, if there is a significant risk 
to society people, right? That was kind of the framing that we were trying to use and then leave the word risk to talking about risk to the business. Um, so in that way, trying to also be more sort of loyal to the way that companies normally talk about risks within an enterprise risk management framework. And I think that sort of logic is a little bit similar also to if you look at the reporting directive also talks about within double materiality talks about uh, impact materiality, right? Impact and then financial uh, risk or materiality. So I think it's important to be aware of these differences and terminologies because and that's something that I've found over the years many times that you can have conversations with people you think you're talking about the same thing. And then you might realize after half an hour that actually, you, you know, you have completely different understandings of very basic uh, terminologies such as a, such as a risk. So it's, it's really important to be explicit. And I guess that comes back to that, that point that Rachel is also saying that it's uh, in that sense, it's a, it's a real benefit that these directives really spell out what, what do we mean? Who do we have to uh, uh, do the risk assessment for and in what way so that, over time, we can begin to develop that that really common terminology and, and move forward. And on due diligence itself, um, uh, obviously people could listen back to Rachel's original podcast. I invite them to do that. But we've also had some brilliant guests in the year who, from individual businesses, people like Rayon Tamam, Yeko and Shivan Davids, who are doing due diligence and talk in detail about what that means to them and their business. So please, that's a resource that I invite everyone to, um, to, to use. Elena, when you and I talked originally, there was a lot of discussion about technology, R&D, technological breakthrough, and the fact that your whole industry is unsustainable as it's, as it exists today. Transport has to change. Um, and by the way, um, Ship at Zero have between then and now said you're the best shipping company in the world on decarbonisation. So congratulations on that. But you've got a big journey uh, in your sector to take. And you've led by bringing this first green methanol ship and trying to have green methanol as an alternative fuel. And you've taken initiative on that. What's happened in terms of the technology and the R&D since we spoke? And can we have some um, uh, real confidence that what we hope for in terms of technological breakthroughs will actually happen? Yeah, those are um, really great uh, questions and really at the heart of um, uh, the, um, the the transition journey for shipping and logistics, uh, right? And I think that... that uh, so for us, um, uh, it's, it's of course hugely exciting that we're now at a point uh, just in a few days this, later this week as we're speaking, uh, on the 14th of September, we'll have um, the first uh, uh, green methanol vessel coming to Copenhagen for the name giving uh, ceremony. Um, so, so it's- are you, are you going to reveal who's the good mother? Well, we have already revealed, right? So that's it's it's Ursula von der Leyen uh, who will be the godmother of the vessel. So we're very uh, proud and 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 excited about that. That's a pretty good one. Well done. Yeah, thank you. Uh, and um, but it, but it really also is. I mean, just to a, a few more comments on that. I mean, we we do also really feel that it's a, a reflection of the of the strong ambition, right, and and direction of the European uh, Union to push push for um, uh, with the Green Deal, uh, push for the transition uh, of the economy, including uh, shipping as well. So um, so I think that, that that's an example of we really see change happening in a very positive direction. Also, just in addition to this one vessel that's coming uh, now, uh, there's actually already uh, over 100 vessels on order for the industry that are capable of sailing on green methanol, you know, so it's not only just this one case, it's actually, we see this exponential change beginning to happen, but there's still a long way to go, right? And of course, there's still uh, discussions uh, about uh, debates about what is the right uh, technology. We have opted for green methanol because it can be used today. It can be, it can, you know, vessels can sail on them uh, on this fuel uh, today and it is available and it works. Um, but uh, but on in the longer term, 
there will be a need for other technologies, uh, no question uh, about that, such as uh, ammonia. Um, but it's a little bit further away in, in our opinion. There's safety issues, for example, environmental impact issues, which need to be managed and handled uh, before it, it can be used safely as a, as a, as a fuel for container vessels. Um, so it's it's a that just that question of what is the best uh, fuel for shipping and logistics is also not a one you know there's not one answer to that we believe there's going to be still uh, a future of uh, let's say various technologies um, that will be used and the I think the key issue remains still uh, being able to um, uh, to actually have the availability of that green fuels in the volumes that we will actually need because to really uh, transition all of, of shipping uh, to, to decarbonize, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's very, very large uh, volumes. Um, they will require renewable uh, electricity uh, as well to, um, uh, for the production. Uh, and uh, and that's not only uh, shipping, right? It's many sectors across uh, society, hard to abate sectors as well, that will be dependent on the availability of renewable electricity. So there's going to be, um, there is already a shortage, uh, right? And uh, and we're absolutely critically dependent also on continuing willingness of governments to really uh, go uh, in, in a very ambitious uh, uh, way to uh, uh, push for the transition, um, as well as uh, also of, of other, you know, obviously our customers as well, right, to support us uh, on this journey. The green fuels remain still uh, more expensive than the uh, than than fossil fuels. So, so even though, yeah, we've we've come quite a way, but we we still just need uh, fallback across across stakeholders and and sectors to uh, to continue the transition. And Philip, that point that companies are on a, a technological journey and some of the technologies aren't there today to enable us to to reach our aims, how can that be be reconciled with reporting? Because the, there's some unknowns there. So how can companies demonstrate that they're genuinely following this journey or, uh, rather than just saying it in, in this specific in, instance of technological breakthrough? Um, the, um, at least the European standards, I mean, they speak of impacts on one hand, and that's that's what we covered uh, about a minute ago, and on the other hand, risks and opportunities. And it's that opportunities that, that really provide space for companies to, to, to describe this. I mean, the, the reporting standards actually, you know, press companies to be a little bit more specific about, you know, how they see their future, especially in the context of the, of the, uh, of the climate transition, uh, but also it gives them a, a lot of flexibility especially on the opportunity side. So it's really up to companies to lay down their plans and, you know, of course, disclose what they are comfortable disclosing because, you know, these are very sensitive issues if you think about, like, what is it that I can, I can, uh, I can disclose. And, and, uh, and, and so the, the whole reporting regime basically provides a framework for companies telling them, okay, this is where you can describe it. This is the minimum that you need to describe, typically on the on the side of the risk, and this is how it links to the to the other information on the on the strategy and business uh, business model. But maybe I'm overcomplicating it. It's just you know it's it's uh, it's a part of the reporting regime, and it's really up to companies to figure it out. Like what is the information that will be relevant. Really, for the uh, for the uh, for for the investors, depends who the investors are, how long their time horizon is. I would I would be rather interested in in what uh, in in how the governments deliver on these on these issues, as 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 Lena said, because you know the the change that needs to happen. And I was speaking on on about climate for and biodiversity for for a moment. The real challenge is not really that yeah we build a ship that you know runs on green methanol. It's it's really the, that 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 change, that cascading change that needs to happen across the across the economy, across across uh, across uh, across all sectors. And you can have really progressive companies and really brilliant business minds in some sectors that can drive it there. But you know if the other part of the industry is not really moving because I don't know there's just you know. 
uh, it's worth a bit, you know, <laughs> to, <laughs> to to embed it in the in the in the existing business models. Then you know, nothing nothing will really uh, nothing will will really really happen. So so I think it would be a real mistake for well Ursula von der Leyen, speaking of her, to simply say that's it. We've created the EU sustain, sustainability framework. Now it's for companies to do it. I, I don't think that that's the case. The governments need to be really agile, really flexible, and see what the economy needs and really throw money at it. I mean, just just see how Europe has reacted almost with hysteria to the Biden's administration uh, Inflation Reduction Act. And the idea behind the Inflation Reduction Act is so simple, just throwing money at the problem. Now, that method has its own problems, right? I mean, <laughs> there are some companies that, you know, benefit from it quite a bit, even though, let's say, they, they over climate transition and human rights due diligence ambition is not as, uh, as, as great. But the point is, it works. And the point is, it's absolutely, it's absolutely needed because the barriers to change in certain industries are simply huge and they need to be brought down by, not just by the private actors, but by the public actors as well. So I would, I, w- I would rather think that the capital market is doing, uh, is doing a lot already in terms of you know, focusing on, on the green and on, let's say, social responsible uh, uh, investment, but it's really the government's and the funding coming from governments that will really make the whole system work, e- including the actually the flow of the of the private investments. As you raise the states, we had a really interesting uh, podcast during the year with Bennett Freeman about the so-called ESG backlash, this hot political debate that's taking place, in particular in the states, but affecting global companies um, that uh, both trade and have partners and subsidiaries there where ESG is absolutely under the spotlight um, and is being attacked uh, by some uh, in the political spectrum. I think perhaps Lena first on this, that puts companies in a really uncomfortable position, I think. Do you, how do you see the, uh, the, what's likely to happen in the States to try and deal with this. Bennett in his podcast, he just said, just deal with the facts, give facts to every question, which I thought was a good bit of advice. But is it just going to get worse and worse? Or do you see that changing? What, what's your view? I know you've been in the States recently. Yeah, that's, that's a big question. I don't know if I can, if I can answer that, but, um, <clears throat> but yeah, I did, um, uh, I was in the States uh, in early July for the TED Countdown Summit. Uh, and it was actually a great experience because uh, for me, uh, for well, for many uh, reasons, but uh, but also just because I, I don't often get the chance to go to the to the US. Uh, and um, and it was really interesting just to kind of, you know, engage in the debates there and feel uh, and sense and hear how, uh, the U.S. Uh, debate is actually um, what is in in focus. How are people talking? Not so much about ESG in that context, but more about climate change. And it was really clear to me, just as a completely not answering your question at all, but just throwing something else in here is is um, <clears throat> how much focus there was within that uh, uh, within those days uh, on the on the on the human impact. Right. I mean, how climate change was actually affecting communities uh, and how that was a driver also uh, really and uh, uh, to to tackle it. Right. To deal with it. And 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 to Philip's uh, point on the IRA, what I find fascinating is how at the same time there is all this talk. You hear so much about the ESG backlash in the U.S. and read about uh, the, the the problems that uh, some uh, companies and others have uh, uh, are, you know, being uh, criticized by right wing, uh, in particular, uh, politicians in the US. But, but when you look then at the IRA, and the reality that that is driving, I feel right, that that, as Philip said, they are really throwing massive amounts of money uh at the actual underlying problem right then it feels like there's there's like two two directions that it's playing out in and and hopefully this esg backlash is more of a sort of superficial talking uh, criticism which will not have much i mean maybe i'm being 
naive and optimistic, but hopefully it won't have genuine uh, impact. Whereas well, I, what I do think is going to have genuine impact is actually the IRA, because um, even in the right wing uh, states, they see the opportunity right, to, uh, to get funding for uh, projects. So no matter um, if they might ideologically uh, uh, say that they are opposed to uh, to a green uh, transition, if the opportunity is great enough, then that could actually be a, a, such a, a strong motivation uh, to make the change uh, anyway. Um, but uh, so that's that's at least what I would hope. Um, but much, of course, remains to be seen about how the the whole U.S. political um, sphere will. Uh, evolve also looking ahead to the elections uh, next year. And of course, whether the Securities and Exchange Commission do finally publish those yes. um, uh, guidance on climate reporting to match what's happened in Europe and elsewhere. I think they will, by the way. Um, uh, uh, and I think that much of the backlash started when they put forward the original draft proposals and maybe when the final proposals are seen on the table, that will itself clear clear the, the picture bit, although legal challenges, um, given that it's the United States, are bound to happen. Can I, can I broaden out that question for you, Rachel? Uh, not specifically the States, but um, whether we're dealing with climate or whether we're dealing with human rights, uh, some of the countries that are uh, the countries that we need to engage with most. At the moment in geopolitics, there's uh, we should engage less with them. I'm particularly thinking about China and the tensions that exist in the international community with China. And yet, if we're going to make progress on these issues, we need to pro make progress with them, not without them. Um, so how do you view that? geopolitical situation we're all facing and where you want to make we all want to make but you absolutely want to make a real difference when it comes to human rights where human rights are uh, violated or risk of being violated how do you see that thanks richard um maybe a quick comment first on on just the discussion the three of you were having i do think it's striking that you know i uh, as we've heard recently, yes, BlackRock is no longer talking about ESG, but now they just talk about material sustainability matters because no one can challenge the fact that they're focused on something that's material. Um, so I think one view is, uh, you know, we're, we're using different language, but we're still talking about the need to talk about the same sets of issues, the same sets of impacts. Um, and, and the fact that this has to move forward and indeed the new European language and methodologies that come with that, right, to the point about facts. We need better methodologies for this and that's what all of this work in the EU is also giving us um, that can then stand up to uh, critique and analysis. Why are you focusing on this? Why not that? How is this material? Why is that not material? Based on a double materiality standard. Um, you touch on some extremely uh, challenging issues that I don't, I don't think anyone has a nice or simple answer to. Um, you know, we've seen the enormous uh, challenges right now with companies, for example, that are subject to the US um, uh, Uyghur uh, Forced Labour Prevention Act bifurcating their supply chains. So you have, quote unquote, you know, clean uh, solar panels coming to the US and, quote unquote, dirty or ones seriously affected by forced labour. Uh, going to other markets. Um, bifurcation of supply chains is not an answer to responsible business conduct. Um, it's an answer to an immediate compliance problem. Um, so that's not a way forward. Uh, and even if the EU adopts um, uh, some kind of a, an import control, which is what's currently under discussion, we have to wait and see how that progresses. Um, that's not a solution that, that we want. If we actually want better outcomes, uh, for affected stakeholders at the end of the day, back to the discussion we were having at the start. Um, so I think what we see very is very important in the EU conversation, because this is where so much of the action is happening, as we've been talking about, um, is that you need member states and you need EU policy in the mix. Because if these new 
uh, regulations are going to have um, sort of perverse consequences like that, then it's going to require political responses that are beyond the scope of individual companies uh, to address by changing their supply chains. Um, and, you know, everybody likes to, I think, cite the phrase in the UN Guiding Principles, the smart mix as part of a bingo game at the UN Annual Forum every year. Um, but, you know, the smart mix is, it, it is valuable because it points to the need for states to be using their development, their trade, uh, financing, um, all kinds of other measures that they have at their disposal to actually ensure that these new pieces of legislation and regulation, which we need, along with effective enforcement, um, don't lead to uh, perverse outcomes for, for those who are affected. Um, the situation in Xinjiang is probably one of the most challenging, uh, as is the situation in Russia, um, as was the situation in Myanmar. There are a number of contexts, I think, where um, for companies who are uh, engaging or staying, um, the yeah the, the logic for doing so is is particularly hard to uh, to maintain. Um, so this isn't going to be uh, a challenge that goes away. Uh, if people want to listen to more about how trade measures are being used to pursue sustainability issues, the um, uh, podcast that we did with Agnese Ruggiero uh looking at the CBAM, the carbon border adjustment mechanism here is a fascinating case example of that and i think in terms of how businesses respond to these geopolitical problems where governments are uh, making life more difficult i'm not saying which ones but that's you know that is the case uh the the um podcast that we did with uh, olena uvarova from ukraine was I think the most moving of the year to how you could still actually fulfil these principles of respect for the environment and for for human rights. We're coming towards the 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 latter part of the podcast, so I want to look ahead, and I want to ask each of you to tell me and share with our listeners um, one thing that's on your agenda for the year ahead that you're going to be working on to give us an insight into what are the current priorities. Perhaps I could take Philip first. Okay, I guess I'll spend the next year working on the European reporting standards like <laughs> the last four years, <laughs> but this time on the sector-specific standards. Look, uh, I don't know. It's very, very unpredictable uh, and partly because of the political pressures. And just just to give you an idea, so 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 the the council, the member states of the EU, is great fanfare, agreed on the corporate sustainability reporting directive, and now they are having the discussion about the due diligence directive. But the very first thing after the directive has been uh, adopted and the European sustainability reporting standards have been uh, drafted, well, the the French and German government delegations came together and came up with a great idea of maybe changing the definition of small, of what small and medium enterprise means, kind of, you know, just bringing that down that number of 50,000 companies that we discussed to, I don't know how many, 20,000 or so, just right after the political agreement reach on this. Now, I don't want to comment on whether it's a meaningful proposal or, or, or not, but it is an indication of what's going on. We spoke about the ESG backlash against ESG, ESG in 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 the US, but something's brewing, brewing, uh, brewing up uh, in uh, in uh, in Europe as well, and we don't know, we don't know really, you know, what to expect next year, you know, in the context of the European election, in the context of election in the Netherlands, Spain, and uh, and uh, and elsewhere. But, you know, having President Macron saying, you know, that, you know, the green laws need to be stopped and so on. I mean, it just doesn't sound right. It just sounds that there is a, a really high political stakes and that, you know, high level politicians making these sudden announcements are not really fully transparent about what is going on. And so let's see what the, what the next year will, will, uh, will bring us. But in terms of the EU policy, at least, I, I hope to be working on the sector-specific standards, which will specify for the high-risk and high-impact sectors really what, how these, how these uh, key principles, such as double materiality, reporting, and due diligence need to be applied in, in there. I think they will be of great help to companies as well as to the environment and people. Lena, one 
item in your work program, your personal work program? Well, uh, actually, I mean, clearly, it, as we have been discussing uh, all along, right, it is the reporting directive, which is just around the corner. Uh, we are um, in the midst of preparing uh, for being compliant with it uh, from 2024. Uh, and um, uh, I think uh, one thing that I really want to point out there also, I mean, I completely uh, echo uh, Philip's um, uh, perhaps, you know, concern or uh, wary uh, attitude to this. Let's say, what, let's see what happens uh, in terms of um, uh, potential uh, political backlash uh, also uh, in the in the EU. But nevertheless, I think it's so important to uh, to to push ahead uh, and uh, and show that um, even though uh, there's a long way to go, also for a company like Mask, who's been reporting for for many uh, years. You know, we are not uh, at the outset. We can't tick all the boxes and say we report everything that we should be uh, should be doing. But but that's okay, right? And uh, uh, I was um, uh, speaking uh, just uh, the other day also uh, to uh, to a journalist uh, here in in Denmark because a report came out that was ranking uh, Nordic uh, or Scandinavian companies against uh, how the ESRS and how prepared they were. And of course, the conclusion was that nobody was ready for it but i think that's obvious no nobody is ready for it because it is a completely new reporting uh standard and it will be a long journey but nevertheless the headline was of course no danish companies are ready for it and i my concern is just that 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 kind of framing then builds perhaps uh, you know or prompts some of that political response in some cases right uh, to say then oh but if nobody can live up to it already then obviously it's wrong, right? Or obviously, then something needs to change. And, and I think that's that would be unfortunate, right? Because I think we all need to move ahead and improve uh, uh, over the coming years. And a clear conclusion of this discussion is don't make it a box ticking exercise. Yes. No one should be Absolutely. worrying about ticking every box exactly. They should be worrying about the impact and the um, the intention behind what this is all about and uh, that's been a very very strong conclusion from the from today's discussion Rachel one personal um work priority for you coming up uh not surprisingly um trying to be as virtually present in Brussels as possible from mm -hmm. the other side of the planet <laughs> uh focused on the CS3D debate and as you were saying Richard um really trying to make sure that it drives that focus on better outcomes, uh, because that is the common ground between all stakeholders, affected stakeholders, civil society allies, uh, and uh, companies themselves. That's what everybody actually wants. And that's what the international standards have the best chance of giving us uh, if we can align with them as, as closely as possible. So it will be uh, an intense few months focused on that. Outcomes, outcomes, outcomes. Last question to each of you. I'll start again with you, Rachel. Um, can you just share a story with, frankly speaking, and all our listeners from the last year, something that's really moved or um, impressed you um, in your work? Absolutely. Um, that's an easy one because while it was summer uh, in Europe, down here in the Southern Hemisphere, it was winter and we had the Women's World Cup um, in Australia and New Zealand. And it was actually uh, an extraordinarily positive time. Um, people often talk about how different the culture is in the women's game from the men's game, how respectful it is, how inclusive it is. Uh, and on top of that, it was fabulous football, but it was a collection of incredible women and men who support them as well from all around the world. Uh, women who fought for equal access to stadia in Iran, uh, women players who've suffered abuse and harassment and sought redress through um, various dispute mechanisms, uh, lawyers, trade unionists who've helped them, defended them, supported them, just a whole bunch of amazing women um, all down here. Uh, and it was wonderful to spend time with some of the people I've worked closely with over the last few years and been inspired by. So it made a, a very nice change from the downsides of sport and human rights. Still a long way to go. And, and again, listeners who didn't catch uh, the original podcast with Rachel, she's an expert on sport and human rights. And sport is, of course, big business. Uh, and we had a lot of discussion about the Men's World Cup in Qatar and 
what happened there. So again, listen back. And um, uh, as we're recording this, there's one less man who's actually involved in women's football, uh, which is the chair of the Spanish um, FA, and that's probably a very good thing, I, if I'm allowed to say that. One story from in, you, Philip. Sorry, Rachel. In, I was just going to say nobody should ever have to put up with being kissed involuntarily on a winner's podium or anywhere ever. So I agree. I think our audience is going to agree with that on most men and women. Philip, one story from the last year. Yeah, um, so I said I'm a little bit under, uh, under the weather, so I, I suppose my uh, my story is not so uplifting. Um, but um, my colleague Ihor Konopka, he's from Kiev, and he's been working in our team for for some time, and mostly working on you know analytical work on uh, on uh, on uh, in the uh, in the. Um, Comparing, you know, the European drafts of of the of the standards with those by the of the ISSB and so on, and then he was mobilized into the army, and we keep in touch every every so often. Um, and he's not at front, at least that's that's the uh, that's the that's the latest uh, latest news part of his uh, unit is. And from time to, from time to time, when we, when we're chatting, he's, he's just telling me how he would love to be, you know, doing that work on developing ESG framework again, and just you know how that. How that is <laughs> almost a dream, you know. How the normalcy of you know tackling things like climate change and developing you know the human rights framework for for all companies you know uh, around the globe and so on. How that feels normal and how that feels you know that you know, something that he would like to you know keep doing. And yet you know he has to deal with that crazy situation in his uh, in in his country. So I guess for me at least, I mean, I, I see, despite all the you know the the magnitude of the cri- crisis that we are we're facing when it comes to the climate and biodiversity, and despite you know the the, the horrendous nature of you know of abuse of human rights in, uh, and so on, I I see so much positive in it because you know we are actually we have the opportunity opportunity to do something with uh, with that. There are so many you know inspiring stories such as you know Rachel as, as you have just said or the methanol ship. I mean that's just that's just amazing. I mean it might not be you know so such a such a such a such an amazing uh, person thing for a person from from the industry, but for me as, a, as somebody not really exposed to this, I'm just the, 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 the scale of that thing. You know, it's just a lot of a uh, lot of mass and. And now it's 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 going to run on a green metal. I found that all, all really, all really, all really very exciting. And uh, even though you know, it's about solving problems that are potentially you know catastrophic to, to us. So, anyways, I hope that Ehor um, will have a chance to work on these issues in Ukraine and uh, around the globe soon. I thought that was a very uplifting answer, and for all of us that are tackling and struggling with these ESG challenges. Um, uh, and then sort of complain about the difficulties. Uh, and even though I fall into that category sometimes, um, the, uh, uh, when our colleague and Frank Bold is in a situation where of potential life and death every day, it helps put our work and our challenges into some, some perspective. Lastly, Lena, a story. Yeah, thanks. And I've been struggling. So first of all, great uh, stories here also shared by, by Rachel and Philip, and I've really been trying to come up with just one story, but I feel like this has just been also a a year of just so many um, overwhelming uh, events in the world, uh, right, which both uh, that really stand out uh, to me, obviously, uh, since early uh, last year, uh, Ukraine, and uh, I mean, really also um, made me uh, proud was the strong say uh, reaction from my own company and the 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 you're really taking a stand and uh, and pulling out uh, of uh, uh, of Russia um in a responsible way uh, of course also you know taking responsibility for our colleagues there um but also doing uh, all we can the the uh, support that has been given uh, both from corporate level but also by many colleagues to support uh, Ukraine um and of course then countered by the positive movement that we do see uh, on climate change with and the green methanol vessel uh, very exciting as i already mentioned but ultimately 
um, and maybe also coming a little bit back to the, as I was mentioning, what struck me when I was in the in the U.S. and the the fact that this is, you know, climate change is becoming so real uh, around the world. Also, we've also seen again a summer uh, here in the northern hemisphere, the summer at least of. Uh, you know, droughts, uh, wildfires, uh, floods, and it's just, they, it keeps on being this relentless um, uh, uh, situation just every year seems to be getting worse and worse uh, and people are impacted and in particular um, coming uh, after the difficult years of Corona. I think one thing that I, is very much on my mind these days is how it impacts young people. Right. Um, I have uh, kids myself around uh, they're 21 and, and 18, and I can see for them and their friends how much personally they are affected by everything that's going on. So um, so it just. Yeah, that the, the story in this sense for me is just the 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 urgency that we continue. I continue to feel about needing to contribute to. Um, pushing the world in a, in a positive, in a more positive direction. Well, thank you. Thank you, uh, not just for what your business is doing, but for all the businesses listening that are part of this Frankly Speaking podcast. And we hope that the information and the encouragement that we give you uh, contribute to making a difference. Thank you very much to Rachel Davis, to Philip Gregor, and to Lena Serpa, who've been our guests on this very special first anniversary version of the Frankly Speaking Responsible Business podcast. I'm afraid we do have, have had to come to the end of our time. Uh, we invite all of our audience to send us your feedback, uh, either through Responsible Company Sections social media or by emailing franklyspeaking at frankbold.org. And we're always on the lookout for new ideas and suggestions for podcasts too. Please don't hesitate to contribute those. Watch out for our next episode. And thank you again to our speakers and to all of you for listening. Do join us next time and goodbye.